0: Good morning, everyone. If you would, please make your way back to your seats. (coughs) And as you do so, I'm asking if you would join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is no secret to you that we are desperately in need of your help. And sometimes we don't always realize it. Other times we feel it very keenly, but regardless of how we feel today, we do need you and we ask for your help. By your grace, because of your Son and through your Spirit, we ask that you would work deep in our hearts, leave us changed, so that we glorify you all the more. In your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. Well, we've already stated near the beginning of um, this whole series of preaching through the book of, Ex- uh, of Hebrews, that, that was a long time ago, that we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. We don't know his name, but it doesn't mean we know nothing about him. In fact, uh, by reading what he wrote in this letter, we can find out much about him, like that he is highly intelligent and probably well-educated. <clears throat> He has some of the most sophisticated and complex writing out of all of the Bible. But despite being such a deep thinker and high intellect, he is not some disconnected, disinterested scholar. He is the heart of a pastor. You can see it in his style of communicating, but also much more in his content. He is a preacher at heart. In fact, many commentators just call him the preacher. This is seen throughout, but especially in the end of this book, in chapter 13, verse 22, he describes what this whole book, this whole letter is. He calls it a word of exhortation. I appeal to you, brothers, to bear with my word of exhortation, which is somewhat of a tactical phrase that was used in synagogues to refer to a sermon, the message that would be given, proclaimed. But he says a word of exhortation. Because, you see, every good sermon doesn't just give you information. doesn't just tell you some facts. Preachers are to proclaim the truth and then to seek to persuade you to respond accordingly. And that's what exhortations do. They urge you, they call you to have a response to truth previously heard or known. But simply telling you what to do without telling you why or how to do it is not good exhortation. It doesn't make for a good sermon. Because if we have the command, that's the what, if we have the command without the how, then we may have a destination, but we don't really have a clear path to walk on to get there. And if we have the command and even the how, but we don't have the why, it isn't helpful either because it's like we have the destination and even a path to walk on, but we don't have the motivation persuading us and energizing us to walk that path. We need both the how and the why to combi- be combined with the what. And that's what we have in the book of Hebrews, and especially, or I should say specifically in our text for this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 through 13. So if you would, please grab your Bibles and stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. <coughs> we'll start actually reading from chapter 3, verse 19 to get a little bit more context Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start right here and tell you what I believe in one... sentence what this entire passage is about. I believe that our passage this morning is telling us that the power of God's piercing word enables us to strive for steadfast faith in God's sufficient work so that we may fully experience God's glorious rest. But to put it more succinctly, it is by God's word that we strive for faith in God's work unto God's rest. God's word, God's work, God's rest. These are central to our striving. And striving is the kind of the focal point of this passage. In verse 11, it tells us the what. What are we to do? Verse 11a, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter that rest. We're going to talk about what that rest is in a moment. But first, he says to strive for it. Striving is not merely giving it a little try. It is concentrating all of your energy to that end. And the end here, it says, is God's rest. We are to make every effort to achieve this thing, take great pains focusing solely on this goal, making it our one aim in life to get at this target, that we would enter the rest of God. He's saying that if we fail at everything else in life, we never get our dream job, we never get our dream house, we never get to go on our dream vacation, we're never really known or that much longer after we're dead and gone, we never have anything, do anything, go anywhere, be anything that we've always dreamed of being, but we get into God's rest, then there's no loss at all. This is it. This is central. This is everything. But... This is what we're striving after, and yet that's not quite how I worded it just a moment ago. And the statement I said that this explains what this entire passage is about, I said that the power of God's piercing word enables us to strive for what? To strive for steadfast faith in God's sufficient work. But what does the text say in verse 11? Let us strive to enter that rest. So which is it? Are we to strive for faith, or are we to strive for God's rest. And it's both because these two are not at odds. They're not at odds because one is the immediate goal and one is the ultimate goal. Faith is the immediate goal that we should be striving for with the ultimate goal being entering into God's rest. And they relate to each other like means to an end. Faith, you see, is the means to the end of entering God's rest. We look at chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter, that's enter God's rest. Why? Because they lacked faith, because of unbelief. Or chapter 4, verse 2. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. It did not give them entrance into God's rest. Why? Because they were not united by faith. Or verse 3. Who is it that enters God's rest? We who have believed. It's those of faith who enter God's rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Who are they? It's those who, by their disobedience, prove that they have no faith. It is faith. We should be striving for faith. And in so doing, we are striving for entrance into God's rest. But it's not just faith in general that we're to strive for, but steadfast faith. Our passage for today is really part of a larger section that I believe starts in large measure in chapter 3, verse 6, where he says at the end of verse 6, we are his house. We are the household of God, part of his family, if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Not just that we once had faith, but that we hold to it, as verse 14 makes even more clear, for we have come to share in Christ. If we hold our original confidence, from the beginning, firm all the way, To the very end. You see, we must have not just faith, but a continual faith, a persevering faith, a faith that is steadfast, a faithful faith. But faith in what? We're to strive, marshaling all of our energy, all of our time to have a steadfast faith in what? Verse 3 says, For those who have believed into that rest. But what do they believe? Verse 2 tells us. Hebrews 4, two for good news, that's the word for gospel. The good news came to us. And what is the good news about? What are we declaring? It's God's work. The good news is that God has done a great work, and it is all sufficient. And it is in his son, Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his reigning, and his promised return. All that Jesus is, and all that God has done in him, and through him, and promises to still do, this is God's all sufficient work. This is what the gospel tells us about. This is the good news in which we are to believe in. And it will do us no good if we can hear it a thousand times. Unless we're united to it by faith, we must believe, strive to believe in God's sufficient work in Christ Jesus. This sufficient work is first in this new creation. The new creation is in us first, though as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So that God's work of, of making something new, we already see throughout the rest, other part of this section in Hebrews that God works in creation, and then he works in his creation after he has created it. He works in the wilderness. For 40 years, he showed them his works, preparing them for God's rest, his promised land. But here, the ultimate and most important point that he's getting at is that there is a new creation, and that new creation starts with us. Well, who is us? Who are those who are the new creation? It's those who are in Christ Jesus. And how do we get to be in Christ Jesus, united to him, but by faith? The rest that comes from a steadfast faith in God's work, that rest is a true spiritual rest that we can have now. We enjoy it presently. It's open to all who will turn to trust in Jesus Christ. It's a present faith and a present rest, but it's not a perfect rest. It's like Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress where he has this burden on his back and it's just getting heavier and heavier every day. He's being weighed down by his sin and the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that comes along with it. And there's no way that he can make it all the way home to the celestial city with that on his back. And he knows that. And so he is greatly relieved. He has given great rest on the day when it simply falls off his back at the foot of the cross. That cross is where Jesus himself said of his work, it is finished. Trusting in God's sufficient work in Christ on the cross is what releases you of your burden and gives you rest now. But you see, it's not quite yet perfect because we still must travel and journey, and it's a dangerous and difficult road all the way home. But one day, one day this rest will be perfect, and it will be full and everlasting. And so we must first have be, uh, be striving for, making every effort to have a steadfast faith in God's sufficient work in Christ Of making us a new creation. And then we have to be striving for a steadfast faith in God's sufficient work to make for us a new creation out of this universe, as we read in verse 8 of Hebrews 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Moses, you see, led the people out of Egypt, but Joshua led the people into Canaan, into the promised land, into the land of rest. But it wasn't the final rest. It wasn't the perfect rest. It was just a shadow of the rest that was to come. And so God spoke of another rest that would come. And so then, verse 9, there still remains for us a Sabbath rest. There remains a rest, a rest, a perfect rest for the people of God. And this rest is, I think, spoken of in many places in Scripture, maybe none more beautifully and clearly than in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And we see a great rest in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. We will have complete rest from it. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and we have rest from all of that. But you see, true rest is not just rest from something, but it's rest in something as well. It's rest with God. For he says, we will get to be his people. He will be with us, we will be with him, and he will be our God. True rest, then we see, is found not only in the absence of suffering and pain and evil, but in the presence of God, of being with him in all fullness. Or as John Calvin says, the highest happiness of man is to be united to his God. This rest, that God is working for us in Christ, This rest is found and only secured by Jesus Christ. And it is a glorious, unending, ever-increasing blessedness of peace, of love, of holiness, of joy, of life, unending. Wherein everything and everyone fits together and works together for our highest good, all being centered on God and for his glory. That's our rest That is promised us. Therefore, we must strive for a steadfast faith. A steadfast faith in God's all-sufficient work. So as to, so that we might have a full experience of God's glorious rest. That answers the why. The what is to strive. Why? Because we have a real hope of experiencing this perfect, glorious rest. It's not just any rest. It's not merely even a human rest. It's a divine rest. Look at verse 10. But whoever has entered God's rest, you see, it's God's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. Speaking of the rest that God made verse 3 and 4, after he created the world. God's rest after creation was a unique kind of rest. It was a kind of rest where it was an enthronement, where God sat on his throne, sovereignly ruling over all that he had made. God rested from his work of creation, of creating, so that he might begin his work in creation, sovereignly working over and providentially working in all of his creation. So you see that not all rest is a simple ceasing of activity. We know this. There is a lot of rest that we can have where we're still active. And that's what God's rest is, and that's the kind of rest he calls us to. So it's not when you die, merely rest in peace and you do no more. You are just ceased to exist. It's we have a different kind of existence, a different kind of activity, a glorious one. See, some rest are an engagement in and an enjoyment of something else. When you cook a meal, you can consider that work. But when you eat the meal, it's activity, but you normally don't think of it as work. If you build a house, that's work. But when you live in it, it's the enjoyment of that work. It's still activity, but it's a different kind. And it's a beautiful kind. One day we will experience the fullness of ceasing from our kind of work now. And we will enjoy the presence of God wherein he rules over all things. And we get to reign with him in perfect and endless joy. So we ought to strive for steadfast faith in God's sufficient work so that we may fully experience God's glorious rest. God's work. For us, in Christ, secures God's rest for us by faith. This is our motivating hope. This is the why of our striving. And if we are to strive, if we're to really give everything, all that we have, all of the time, for the rest of our lives, we need not only the, the what and the why, but also the how. <clears throat> how do we do this? What does it look like? I think verse 12 gives us the fullest answer we have. In this passage, we read, strive, verse 11. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This takes us to the first phrase of our kind of full sentence about this passage. It's telling us that the power of God's piercing word enables us to strive for faith, steadfast faith in God's sufficient work. It is by God's Word that we strive for faith in God's work unto God's rest. The Word is what enables us. Verse 12 begins with the word for, telling us the reason why we ought to strive is because the Word is powerful, because the Word pierces. There is the purpose and the power of the Word of God, and that is why you ought to strive. This gives us the reason of purpose, telling us that you need... To take this medicine, not just because you're sick, that would be a reason in general, but a reason of purpose says you need to take this medicine because it will make you better. So here, it, it's, we need to strive to enter that rest. Strive for a steadfast faith that we may enter that rest because the Word of God is powerful. Because of what it does, you need it. It pierces into the depths of our hearts, uncovering and working against those things that threaten to undermine or weaken or completely destroy our faith. And in so doing, the Word actually creates in us a stronger, more steadfast faith. And so we see that verse 12 is not only a purposeful reason for why we ought to strive, but it gives us a practical application for how we are to strive for a steadfast faith persevering in your faith, being steadfast in your trusting of God, continuing to believe in Jesus may just be one of, if not the hardest thing that anyone can actually ever do. Why is that? We could say it's because our culture is increasingly anti-Christ and therefore anti-Christian. And that would be true. We could say it's because our enemy is constantly seeking to make shipwreck of our faith. Indeed, indeed, again, true. But I think the biggest reason why it is so challenging to have a steadfast faith is because of not what's out there, but because of what's in here our own hearts. Our hearts are easily hardened against the Lord, prone to wander, prone just to undervalue and minimize what is glorious and beautiful. Whether it's pride, Whether it's selfishness or cynicism or foolish desires or any other number of things, the fact is our hearts often struggle to steadfastly and joyfully trust in God's sufficient work in Christ. And so we need help to keep our hearts soft and sincere and submissive and surrendered to the Lord. Our hearts are just too deep, they're too complex, they're too labyrinth-like for us to figure out, let alone straighten out. So we need the power of the Word of God to help us. The Word of God is powerful. Again, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active. That is, it is not mere words on a page. When accompanied by the Almighty Spirit of God, it is living and active because God is living and active. It's a powerfully effective tool in the hands of God. It has always been so. Think back to the beginning of all of our universe. God gave his word. He spoke. And we literally had something from nothing. God's word, you see, is creative. Or when Jesus stood before a tomb of a rotting body, and he said to Lazarus, Arise, and the dead man came to life. That's the power of God's Word. It's performative. It produces something. Or when the Holy Spirit takes this book, preached, proclaimed, shared, read, and he gives real saving faith to sinners. This is God's power, the power of his Word. It is living and active. It always, Isaiah says, is like rain that it always produces exactly which it was, for which it was sent out for. Or as Jeremiah says, it's like fire that burns, or it's like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces, or it's, as the preacher of Hebrews says, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, pointing to the effectiveness, the power of God's Word. The word for sword can be uh, also called knife. Like, think of that of, of a useful tool, like a surgeon's scalpel to do precision work. And where does it do its work, but it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Did you hear that? Thoughts and intentions of the heart. The heart, that thing that makes us, the, the uh, steadfast faith in Jesus, the hardest. Our, our, our hearts, those, that, that thing that makes us want to reject, or at least turn away from, or be hesitant to receive God's word our hearts that are prone to wander and leave the God we love, the Word of God pierces into that. It deeply penetrates to the core, reaching down into the depths of who we are, and it sheds light. And what light does is it scatters the darkness, and so it changes who we are from the inside. The implication of the descriptions of the power of God's Word here I think, give us practical applications. Overarching application is that you need to immerse yourself in the Word of God. But if we read it carefully, it doesn't say that the Word of God is true and good for you, so read it. The description is poetic. The imagery is is stark. So he's telling us, not only immerse yourself in the Word, but immerse yourself in the Word of God as the Word of God, not as just some dry, dusty old book. Receive it, embrace it, as though it really is coming from the mouth of God himself. Embrace the Word of God as it is a living, and active Word, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing down deep into our hearts. Read it that way. Listen to it that way. It's just far too easy to read the Bible superficially, isn't it? We can read it. We can listen to it. Check it off and walk away. He says, Don't do that. That's not what it's for. Don't read it superficially. Don't read it flippantly. Embrace it as the living and active Word of God. How do we do that? Let me give you three points. One, we need to have the right attitude when we come to the Word. Number two, we need to have the right action when we partake of the Word. And three, we need to have the right application in response to the Word. How do you have the right attitude? several things, but I'm going to just give you three. One, remind yourself of what the Word is. Like when you go to pick up the Bible, don't just start with, uh, let me read it. Remind yourself what you're doing, what this is, what it's for, and then pray. Pray that God would indeed affect you, change you. But then you need to have the attitude of faith because it doesn't always feel that way. You can, you can have a sincere reminding of yourself and prayerfulness and open up the Word and read it and go, I, I even think I understand it, but I don't feel immediately changed. That's okay. Because you need to read by faith that God, God's Word is still living and active. No, mar- no matter if you feel it immediately or not, it is still God's Word. Receive it as such by faith. So it leads us to action. The right attitude should lead to right action, which... We need to read and listen and think carefully about the Word. It, it does us no good if we read it and make it say whatever we want it to say. If we're not carefully considering, God, what is the context? What is the meaning? What, what are you trying to get at here? What's the real intended message of the author to his original audience? I don't want to mess it up. Think carefully. But thinking carefully, reading carefully takes time. This may be the hardest part about reading God's Word as God's Word, giving it the time that it is due. You have to make time for this. It doesn't just happen. You don't just stumble into it and say, hey, I read the Bible for three hours a day. Who knew? It just happened. You You have to plan for it. You have to fight for it. And some of you may be thinking, you don't understand. I have no extra time. I, which To which I would say, I think all of us have more time than we think we do. But even if you don't, even if you don't and you are stretched to the max and there's nothing you can cut out, no other way you can prioritize or reschedule anything, even if that were true, then make the best use of your time. Do you have five minutes? Do you have three minutes? Do you have 30 seconds five times in a day? Then put it on your phone. Type it out. Or pull up your Bible app on your phone so it's the first thing you see. So when you have 30 seconds, you pull it up and you meditate and you think carefully for those 30 seconds. And you might not get it again for another two hours, but then you pray through it when you get another minute later. And then later on in that day, you do the same thing again and you ask God to teach you. And then later the next day, you call somebody or you're meeting with somebody and you say, hey, this is what I was thinking about. Will you help me to digest it more fully? Make the best use of your time. God can multiply loaves and fishes, the little bit that you do have, Don't make excuses. But if all you do have is a little, then use it. Redeem the time and ask him and trust him to make it effective because it is a living and active word. The point is to engage intentionally and to engage with intensity with God's word, which should lead to right application. Right attitude or right action and then right application. We need to connect God's word and the truth of it to us. It's not just, oh, I understood it as though I'm understanding some some textbook. It's not history only. It is applicable to us today. I love what it says in Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, did you catch the tense of that last word? He's quoting Psalm 95, which David wrote hundreds of years before, and he says, the Holy Spirit says. He still speaks. He speaks to us. It might not have been originally written to us, but it has always been for us. Apply it, but you need to connect it to yourself responsibly. That is, if, if the word is saying one thing, don't try to connect it in a way that's irresponsible and doesn't connect, doesn't fit. Make it an appropriate connection, but also make it a deep connection. If you read and it says, God is love. Okay, application, God is love, God loves me. The end. It would be appropriate, I think, responsible application, but not a very deep connection. So perhaps we need to go deeper. Think a little more carefully, more intent with intensity, saying, God, what is that supposed to do for me? How am I to respond to it? Am I trusting that you love me? Am I trusting that that's enough? H- how should that affect how I live and how I love others? I don't love like you love, so what is that telling me? and a thousand other things that could be applied to us, connect it more deeply. One of the ways to do this, I think, is to digest through discussion. You can write notes. That's one way to do it. Journal, make your thoughts clear. But you can also digest through discussion. I think this is highly, highly underrated. Read the Bible together. We need to let the Word of Christ dwell among us richly, so we're saying maybe we're going to read the Bible on our own together. We're going to listen to it on Sunday morning together, but then we're going to meet together and talk about it later. Digest it through discussion. How does this apply? How do you see this? Am I seeing this right? What do you think about this? That's the point of community. And then I think thirdly with application, not only connect it responsibly, digest your discussion, but plan to put it into practice. What you do here as truth, and you're persuaded to put into action, make a plan. Commit to respond in obedience to whatever God is calling you to, whatever he's exposing in you, about you. Let there be true repentance, true growth, true seeking of change. Part of striving for a steadfast faith in Jesus may mean getting extra help. Like, maybe it's an issue of you need of understanding, theology, or some cultural issue. Maybe it's an issue of growth for you in some area, or maybe it's an issue of sin that you need repentance in, and so you need extra help, like reading a good book or two, or getting counseling, or having others praying for you, or accountability, a discipleship group, or something else. All of those may be necessary, but what I do know for sure is necessary is that you pick up the Bible, that you listen to it proclaimed, and you receive it as it really is, the Word of God. It is powerful, piercing even to the depths of our hearts, creating in us a stronger, more steadfast faith in God's sufficient work so that we may have a full experience of God's glorious rest. There are really only two options, two options in life. You can work your whole life, day in, day out, at home, with your friends, by yourself, Wherever you're at, you can work with a burden on your back. Being weighed down by the guilt, shame, and condemnation for your own sin, never having real rest. And you have no promise of help in the meantime, and in the end, there is no sure hope of eternal and everlasting perfect rest. If you want to take this route, it requires that you trust in yourself or in something or someone else that will, I guarantee you, let you down. That's one option. The second option is also to work. It is to work, however, without a burden. Being given relief and rest, freed from this burden of guilt and sin, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're a new creation, and we have rest in him. And added to that, we have the promise of a constant and effective help by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And in the end, we have for us a sure hope of perfect and everlasting rest with God. That's the second option, and it requires trusting in Jesus. Trusting in God's sufficient work, that it's His work in Christ is all that is needed. And we need to strive to have a steadfast faith in that sufficient work, and this is really the only thing that makes sense in this crazy life. It's by faith, though. We are to strive for faith by faith. That is, we are to strive for a steadfast faith because you believe that God's rest is worth it. Strive for a steadfast faith because you believe that Jesus alone is able to save and to secure you God's eternal and perfect rest. Strive for a steadfast faith because you believe that if you don't strive for it, your heart will increasingly be hardened. You need to get up early or go to bed late or spend time throughout your day, whatever it takes to get more of God's Word that it would pierce your heart to uncover and change you from within because you believe that the Bible really is the Word of God. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces through the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You should strive for a steadfast faith through the Word of God, by the Word of God, because you believe that God's Word is powerful and that God's work is sufficient, and that God's rest is glorious. You know, it's amazing that we have the promise of entering into God's rest. Divine, glorious, unending, ever-increasing blessedness of joyful rest, simply by faith. We get entrance into God's rest. It is those who believe that enter God's rest. Not those who work really hard. Not those who have done all they can to add to what Christ has done. Not those who have felt guilty enough about their sins that sometimes God feels sorry for them. No, it's those who trust in God's sufficient work. It's simply by faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus and all that God has done in his work in and through him. And so if you do not truly receive Jesus, trusting in steadfastly in this sufficient work of God in Christ, then there is a warning in this text. He said it over and over again. They, if it's you, you shall not enter his rest. You will not have it. You will fail to enter in. And no, you you can't play the game. It's not a game. You can't skirt the issue. You, you, you can't manipulate or trick or connive your way through it. There's no other cards you can play. Listen to what he says in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This comes right after verse 12. It talks about the word of God discerning us deep in our hearts. You see, God's word pierces us to the core digging up and uncovering who we really are, what we really believe, what we really think and feel. And the reason why the Word of God is so capable at doing this is because it is the Word of God. And God sees absolutely everything. God is the all-seeing judge. Nothing evades His notice. No one escapes His scrutinizing gaze. His knowledge of us and of everything is absolutely and wonderfully exhaustive. It is without exaggeration, comprehensive, totally, and perfectly, completely thorough in every way. He sees every nook and cranny of the deepest and darkest recesses of your soul. He sees as clear as day, as though right before him, everything, even those things you thought no one knew about, even those things you don't even know about yourself. such is the one to whom we must give account. You cannot hide from him, him whose eyes see all. If you harden your heart and refuse to trust in his Son, then God will one day deprive you of rest. He will deprive you of everything your heart needs and longs for, and he will do so in complete justice. God, your judge, the judge, needs no witnesses. He needs no evidence presented, and he will accept no contrary, excusing, or loopholing argument in your favor. If you are not yet trusting in God's sufficient work in Christ to free you of your burden and to promise you change and everlasting rest, then when others come up to partake of communion, please stay where you are. Stay and pray. And afterwards, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors or another Christian. Put on a connection card. Email us, whatever, but do it today because today is the day you should not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation for all who will trust in Jesus. And if you are trusting in him, if you do believe that God's work is sufficient, it's all you need and more, and it it comes only in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then in just a moment you can exit to your left and come up to one of these tables and take these communion elements of bread and juice with the gluten-free bean to your far left and go back to the right to your seats to take it with faith in what it represents, the body and the blood of Jesus given for sinners. Have you thought about that? The one who knows you best, the one who knows you completely through and through, the one who knows the good, the bad, and the ugly, the, good, the one who knows everything you've ever thought, ever did, ever said, ever wanted, and he knows it all perfectly this very moment. The God who has seen you at your utter worst has given you his very best. He's given you his son so as to cover you with his righteousness that he might take your wickedness promising you change, transformation, and real rest, both now in part and one day, forever in full perfection and endless joy. For those who are ready, for those who should come, please come and partake of this communion with faith.